Hello and welcome to a new year of JobsCast. I hope 2022 is going well for you, notwithstanding an ongoing pandemic. As Omicron, a considerably more contagious, though less lethal variant of COVID, has surged through the population, for many, comfort levels around returning to pre-pandemic activities have been shifting. For example, in my own life, I avoided indoor dining almost entirely for the past 22 months, but now that I'm vaccinated and boosted, and those are the absolute keys here, my thinking would be totally different otherwise, I've come around to accept a certain, hopefully small COVID exposure level in order to support and enjoy select restaurants that seem to be doing their due diligence in terms of safety. I love going to restaurants, and it's my deep hope that 2022 will be a better year for the industry than 2021. And with this in mind, it was my great pleasure to speak to an expert from the world of food and hospitality, Mr. Dana Coteen. Dana is the founder of Miesbox, an intuitive platform that empowers restaurant managers to maintain and communicate consistent information about the business from a single place, creating clarity for employees, ultimately improving work culture, daily performance, and profitability. Dana and I discuss what it means to work in hospitality and how Dana got into the industry. We explore the many roles he's had along his career path, the concepts of anti-job and work-life balance, the role of performance at work, and how to handle difficult guests. We also talk about the experiential possibilities of restaurants, ranging from fast casual to fine dining, the notion of customer as king, and why Dana decided to make a career pivot from standing to sedentary work. We close with Dana providing a wonderful list of New York City restaurant recommendations. Earlier today, I came across a great article from Eater.com, I'll link to it in the notes, that gave a useful summary of what the New York City restaurant world has learned from the pandemic. And I'll just read the bullet points for you here now. These are the views of the four writers of the article, Luke Fortney, Boo Ong, Erica Adams, and Tanae Warakar. So, what New York's restaurant community has learned from the first year of the pandemic. Outdoor dining works in New York City and should be here to stay. The success of to-go cocktails proved New York doesn't need outdated liquor laws. Restaurants are facing a rent crisis and need a long-term solution. Minority and women-owned restaurants were among those hardest hit by the pandemic. Historic neighborhoods like Chinatown can survive when New Yorkers rally behind them. Andrew Cuomo and Bill de Blasio's constant bickering cost New Yorkers unnecessarily. Food criticism nixes stars for now and highlights a more diverse group of restaurants in the process. The pandemic made it clear a growing veganism movement is here to stay. Expensive restaurants can also do takeout. Instagram ushered in a new era for unemployed chefs. The voices of hospitality industry workers are louder than ever. Putting limits on third-party delivery companies is possible and needed. And finally, ghost kitchens may be popular, but they can't replace restaurants. A ghost kitchen is when one or more operators sell different cuisines from the same kitchen without a dine-in option. Dana and I don't talk about all of these points, but we do get into a number of them, so either before or after you listen to our talk, I suggest you read this article to get an even more complete picture of what's going on these days in the New York restaurant scene. I now present my conversation with Dana Coteen. Dana, welcome to JobsCast. Thanks for having me, Pat. So Dana, what is hospitality? It's a big question. I think for me, hospitality is taking care of people and a demonstration of empathy for others, thoughtfulness. I think that's a good start to hospitality in terms of the spirit of the word. 
How did you get into this field? It was an accident. My friends and I would hang out behind the shopping center in the town where I went to high school. I'm a native New Yorker. So when I was around 15, my friends and I would hang out behind the shopping center where there was a pool hall and a Bennigan's upstairs um, <laughs> in the shopping center. And if for those uh, who are listening, don't know what Bennigan's is, it's sort of if TGI Fridays were Irish. <laughs> we would hang out behind the shopping center and we would get stoned and then go upstairs to play pool and eat at Bennigan's. And then when I turned 16 and I was of legal age to work in New York, me and my friends were like, wouldn't it be cool if we like got the discount and like worked at Bennigan's and like we're here anyway. And so I got a job at Bennigan's because I wanted cheaper chicken fingers, I guess. And yeah, and that sort of was the accident that launched uh, a now 20 plus year career in this um, amazing industry. Tell us about those initial days of working at Bennigan's. What role did you start in? Were you a server? No, I was a, a host and a busser. I forget exactly what the laws were, but there was something around liability where I think you had to be 18 to serve alcohol. In some places it's 21, but I couldn't be a server until I was 18, if I recall correctly. And how did you feel about busing and hosting? Did you feel that you had a knack for it? It, it wasn't work. And I think that's why I'm still in the field. I mean, it's definitely hard work and there are definitely days. I think the human mind has an incredible ability to erase or diminish trauma. <laughs> so I can't say that in the 20 years that I've been doing this, there weren't like really hard shifts or, or engagements that were challenging between guests and or coworkers or whatever, but it was fun. We just had fun. It wasn't really that busy of a restaurant. It was really tiny. We didn't really have pop-ups back then. I mean, we're talking the late 90s. The concept of pop-up restaurants wasn't really a thing. In fact, restaurants, to have a career in restaurants sort of wasn't a thing in terms of the, the broader you know, societal idea of what it meant to work. But yeah, it was fun. It was, it was a fun time. In our texts to um, schedule this call, you said that I think I'm the anti-job, and I think <laughs> that explains it in part. I think that my friend Colin once said that people are extremely adept at being able to tag things as work, and I thought that that was insightful. I think we were talking about how there's this sort of ability to turn any interest or hobby into a source of revenue these days, and I think that's Extremely mixed. I think for some people, that sort of nonstop hustle to promote your craft on Etsy or your service on TikTok or Instagram or Clubhouse or whatever, I think that that suits certain personalities pretty well. I think for others, it creates a kind of pressure. And I wonder if we're, as a culture, losing the ability to have leisure strictly for its own purposes. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I was thinking about my comment to you that I sort of have the anti-job, and I think I've actually been fairly consistent about that idea, maybe since high school, but certainly since college. I think that early on in my existence, 
I decided that this concept of work-life balance, there's this necessary split between the work that we do in our life and I guess the life that we live. And for me, that never really made sense. Like I'm just here, <laughs> I'm existing, I, I am living. And so the idea that work isn't life never made sense to me. And so going into college, it's almost like I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew what I didn't want to do. And I yeah. didn't want a job. I didn't want to commute into the city and work at a desk and wear a suit, right? I knew that that wasn't the right thing for me. <laughs> and I swore I would never sit at a desk. Ironically, all I do is sit at a desk now, <laughs> albeit not in a suit, but I knew that I didn't want a job. And so when I went to college, I, I studied philosophy and then I ended up picking up Spanish after dancing around a bunch of other majors and minors because I wanted something that enriched me as a being, not for a directional or sort of practical reason. And I've been fairly consistent about that. And so I've picked up a variety of skills, but I've always worked in the hospitality business ever since I was at Bennigan. So even when I wasn't building a career in the sense of people going to school and studying the subject and then getting a job in that field and growing and certifications and all of that. I was just sort of working because I liked the work. And there's a whole lot of things about why I like the work that, that we could probably unpack in our time today. But I just liked it. And I tried to do other things. I've done a, a boatload of consulting. There was a time years where I was uh, very involved in environmental advocacy and I started my first entrepreneurial adventure, I could call it, was a consultancy that helped restaurants divert their waste from landfill. So we oh. helped them divert specifically food waste, organic waste out of the waste stream. But I worked in restaurants at that time. And yeah, I mean, I worked at a ice skate tennis sort of sporting goods store for a minute. I worked at Express in retail for like two months. I've done a lot of different things, but I've always worked in restaurants. I think hilariously enough, you're the first person on the show to reject the notion of work-life balance and recognize that there is possibility for living a more integrated life or, or at least a less violently compartmentalized life. I was thinking about mm. how, I don't know if you observe this, but I feel like when you see kids who graduate from college and enter a corporate environment, watching them kind of mimic what they think professionalism is in a very kind of buttoned up, stuffy environment, it just seems so startlingly unnatural to me. It's like, this so clearly has nothing to do with the essence of who this person is. And in fact, I have no idea what the essence of this person is because it's so buried under this elaborate, stilted mimicry of what it means to be a corporate person. And a lot of this, to, to be fair, is based on my personal experience working for uh, a corporation when I was 23 years old called Netcracker Technology <laughs> corporation. And uh, it was wow. very much like an office space type scenario. I swore never to do it again. And thankfully, I haven't had to yet. Fingers crossed. I definitely didn't prepare to ask you this, but I think this might be fun. It seems 
as as someone who worked at uh, TGI Fridays in yeah. college and someone who loves restaurants and has been to many of them, there is a performative dynamic to what's going on in that space. And I, I think when I use that word, some people might misconstrue it as suggesting inauthenticity, but I don't actually think that's true at all. I think oftentimes people feel like they're best selves when there's a kind of performative element to it. And it applies to my job as well. When you were speaking, I was thinking about how much it resonated because I'm an English tutor. I work in education and that English tutoring has been multifaceted. I've done everything from test prep to working on reading skills with younger kids to helping literally the people who are curing cancer, biochem PhDs at MIT and Harvard, helping them prepare PowerPoints and poster presentations And in all of those roles, I'm a motivator, I'm a coach, I'm positive, I'm enthusiastic, in addition to trying to impart whatever linguistic expertise I have. And I love that. And I feel like I'm me in a way that I distinctly wasn't when I was working at Netcracker. So uh, what do you think, Dana, about this notion of performing? I don't know, maybe you object to that language, but what do you think about this? I'm going to actually start where you started talking about the corporate. This is something that I talk to younger. I'm 38, so I'm not old. But if you're 19, you're quite a bit younger than me <laughs> at this point in terms of what, what you've been able to experience in in life. But I think my generation, especially older millennials, certainly millennials in general, but we were sort of sold this lie or this sort of version of what the world was. And then with technology unfolding the way that it did over the last 20 years, that whole worldview crumbled. I don't think there's anything particularly controversial about what I've just said. I think yeah. that broadly that's true. And growing up, I remember being asked this question, what do you want to be when you grow up? And tying back to what I said before about how I don't want to sit at a desk and this concept of work-life balance, I think that that's a bad question. I think that yeah. really yeah. it's like, what do you want to do? I want to be happy. I want to be, I don't know, but what do you want to do? And what you do and what you are, are not the same thing. And there's an entire rabbit hole of sort of Buddhist, Hindu, um, spiritualism we could go down, but let's put a pin in that for the moment. And Mm. answering your question, I think you are performing in hospitality a bit. And for me, and I think that this is Probably not universally true, but broadly true. There's kind of two reasons why <clears throat> that works for those of us that, that dedicate ourselves to this work. Firstly, I think any great performance, there's parts of yourself that you bring into that. So in the work of hospitality, I get to be different versions of myself at any given time. And in the dialogue, the emotional or verbal dialogue that you have with guests, people draw different things out of you. And it's a very special environment to have a specific audience and be this character for that person. And I think for me, the hospitality is like, who does this person want me to be? Who do they need me to be? And and how can I make this experience what they want? On the flip side, though, and this is a coin, I think, this performance coin, on the other side, I get to control the narrative Mm. where I get to only show you 
this particular part of me. We call it server voice. And mm. you probably have a podcast voice. Sure. And there's a teacher voice. And this ties into what you said about this sort of new version of, of work, this, the gig economy, the influencer economy. I would like to think that a lot of people listening to this understand that part of it, because I think part of the allure of social media and this idea of the influencer or even just a non-influencer, regular person curating a Facebook or Instagram account, we like to control the narrative. So I, I think that hospitality is the perfect place for expressing parts of yourself that you don't normally express in your everyday life or interactions. And it's a really nice way to curate what parts of you people can or can't see. Yeah, that's great. That makes a lot of sense and is very interesting. It, it makes me think too, there's a, there's a quote, perhaps a bit trite to share on commencement day by Howard Thurman, the 20th century theologian. Don't ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive and go do it because what the world needs is people who have come alive. I like it. And I would even remix it and say, be alive. If you could avoid just asking what makes you come alive and find a way to be in aliveness and carry that aliveness through what you do, I think that'll that'll help in general. So the interaction between guests at a restaurant and let's say a server, this is something that I'm excited to hear your insider take on. Say we're at what people would generally describe as a, a nice restaurant, maybe nice, that implies a certain level of price of the food, it implies uh, tablecloths, it implies dress code. And I think most people have a vague understanding of what separates nice from uh, Bennigan's and Fridays. And <laughs> it, although I will say that distinction doesn't seem to hold as much in a city like Boston, where I lived for 15 years, in terms of the dress code, where you see people wearing Red Sox hats at expensive <laughs> restaurants. And I'm just like, take off your stupid Red Sox hat. Anyway, I digress. I, I think that you're in a restaurant and Obviously, I, I have the bottomless hunger for talking to people and meeting people, hence this podcast. I love to co-create dining experience and dialogue and interaction with the server to the extent that they're capable of doing it. I'm always sensitive to how busy servers are, or I try to be, and it's fun. Servers are generally super knowledgeable. They have high EQ generally. And I just find it a ball to riff with them and learn from their food expertise and so on. I do think that there are many people in the world who, regardless of the restaurant they're at, treat servers basically like robots, just food delivery mechanisms. And there's very little interest in engaging on a human level. Those are two kind of broad stereotypes about interactions with servers. And I and I'm guessing that the spectrum is more dynamic. There are all different kinds of ways you can have an interaction. But do you think, Dana, that the the former, this notion of co-creating a, a fun, special experience at a restaurant, do you think that that's brought out as much by the environment as by the people? What is the kind of alchemy that creates uh, a dining space where basically everyone knows like, okay, this is going to be a space where the servers and the people dining are in it together, as opposed to that view that, that some people have where servers are just food delivery mechanisms. Well, I think 
I say this often, context matters. Let's start with establishment. So I think that there's different kinds of restaurants and people go to different kinds of restaurants for different needs that they have. And I think that there really isn't anything more primal, right? Like food, shelter, water, community are these primal needs. So going to restaurants strikes a chord in that really primal space for us. And I think that some restaurants are there to serve a transactional purpose. This is the rise of fast casual, right? The, the Chipotle Shake Shacks of the world. I'm in a rush. I need something that's reasonably good at a reasonable price that I can get reasonably quickly. That's a certain type of experience. And then this nice restaurant that you're talking about, there are transactional versions of those as well. Working in the theater district for a year here in New York City, where I would serve I don't know if this is going to make sense to non-restaurant people, but in the two hours of the pre-theater rush from six to eight, I would do like $2,000 in sales wow. um, in my section. <laughs> so four other sections of the restaurant, there's a transactional nature to that. So I think the establishment sets the tone. There are definitely places where you're going to go, it's going to be nice, and you don't have the warmth or what I guess I would call access to the emotional side of, of the service experience. And that maybe that's not why you're there. And maybe that's not why the restaurant exists. Mm. I think that's changed a lot, especially again, as, as more millennials become leaders in our field and more of them have opened restaurants. And again, this is well-documented, like experience matters to us. The experience of our work matters to us. And just generally speaking, we'd rather spend our money on experiences than things. So with that generational change, the leadership and the creative energy behind restaurants is interested in creating experiences. And the guests that are coming in largely are interested in enjoying those experiences because maybe joy isn't <laughs> the reason that they're going. <laughs> so I think that it starts with the context that's created by the restaurant and then there's the individual need of the guest or the party. For example, if you and a friend um, are going out to dinner, that's a different context than being on a date. And that's a different context than being with five members of your family. And that's a different context to a business dinner. And so why you are there also lends to the tone or what the shape and the sounds and the smells of that experience are going to be will change with that context as well. Yeah. You probably know this, maybe you don't, but for listeners, it, it might be interesting. I dug a little bit into the etymology of hospitality. Mm -hmm. Hospitus, one who welcomes guests, proto-Indo-European root meaning stranger guest host, or more properly, someone with whom one has reciprocal duties of hospitality representing a mutual exchange relationship, highly important to ancient Indo-European society. Hostess in even earlier use also meant stranger or enemy. So there's this notion of strangers coming into a place as guests, but also as potential enemies. And I thought that contronymic etymology was super interesting. Contronyms for the fellow word nerds out there, or for people who are just curious, it's a word that contains its meaning and its opposite meaning. So for example, 
cleave to can mean stick to, but of course cleave also can mean cut and separate. Dust is another good one. Dust as a verb means remove the dust. Dust as a noun is dust. It's the presence of dust. So anyway, that's all on ramp into the next question, which is strangers as uh, enemies. (laughs) People who come into the restaurant and are just a pain in the ass and the staff has to deal with them. In your various roles in restaurants, have you ever kicked people out? I'm guessing you've dealt with many people who didn't behave at the level that would warrant kicking them out, but still made the night a little bit more unpleasant for the people dealing with them. Could you share some stories about difficult guests and maybe strategies for dealing with them? What's interesting about you asking this question is that it's in the focal area of my attention fairly recently, this idea that the guest is not always right. And a a number of months ago, a friend, a colleague, John DeBerry, who is an author, he's the um, founder of the Restaurant Workers Community Foundation, really, really smart guy. Fairly recently, he, he wrote an article that challenged the concept of what it means to take care of people and challenged Danny Myers setting the table, which I don't know that we can unpack this, and I'm not exactly answering the question by opening this up, but this idea that the guest is always right is is actually, I think, a waning concept, and they're not always right. And as you mentioned, lots of times, to be frank about it, guests can be assholes. There's a lot of horror stories. I mean, anybody that you talk to that's worked in a guest-facing service position whether that's a host or a busser or a manager or anybody in between, we all have horror stories about being treated poorly. And when you look at, especially in the last couple of years, where white people are starting to recognize equity um, as something that matters in hospitality, historically, there's tremendous inequity. So now let me answer the question with that sort of preamble. There's different kinds of difficult guests. (laughs) There are guests that are annoying, that just need a lot. They need your attention. They need things. And they need these things or ask for these things in ways that are wholly inefficient for you to give them. (laughs) Ideally, a server or a bartender is juggling 15, 20 different tasks A lot of people think of restaurant work as unskilled or low-skilled labor, and it's not. You are a project manager, and it's under the tightest of timelines. And so a simple request from a guest for additional sauce or a napkin or whatever it might be, is has to be integrated into a timeline (laughs) of 20 other things that that person is doing. And An annoying guest may not know that they're being annoying by asking you for a thing every time you come to the table, but it's actually really hard to go back to the table and then they say, oh, and I need this. And and there's a term for it. We call it they're running me. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like playing fetch with your dog. It's like, okay, now go get this. So I think most people who do that don't know that that's what they're doing. And they're just kind of focused on their own experience and their own world. And and I think largely that's okay. It doesn't make it not annoying, but <laughs> largely that's okay. And then there are people that are just terrible. 
I've waited on an, a lot of amazing celebrities in my time. And there's one celebrity who is known for being awful. And I had the unique pleasure of taking care of this person on a given night at a restaurant here in New York. And I was excited and nervous. I'm debating whether or not I say her name because either people will agree with me or they'll hate me for it. But anyway, this person, she's made her career in culinary arts, in etiquette, in taking care of your home. And so I was a little bit nervous to take care of this person because it's like, oh, well, we're not a fine dining restaurant, but we use some fine dining technique. And is she going to notice if I serve from the left and clear from the right? I went through this whole thing and how do I speak to her and what do I do? So anyway, she sits down. It's her, her assistant, and I guess a friend. And she orders an iced tea. They order all their food. And during the meal, I am conscious of interrupting because, again, this is a person who's sort of known for having opinions about etiquette. And generally speaking, I take taking care of people seriously and I'm thoughtful. I think that's why I'm good at what I do. And so the time comes to refill her iced tea. So I'm <laughs> faced with this question. Do I ask her if she'd like an iced tea, which requires interrupting? Or do I just bring her an iced tea, which is presumptive? So I decide to bring her an iced tea. And I don't know how many times I refilled her iced tea. But we're at the main course time. They ordered so much food. And normally I would guide guests and this seems like maybe it's a lot. Or just because I want the sales doesn't mean I should let you order more food than is reasonable. Mm -hmm. um, and so they order all this food and I bring over another iced tea and I take it off the tray and I can imagine, I can feel myself back in the room. I'm still mad about it. So I take the iced tea off the tray and it's like in slow motion, I'm gonna put it down on the table. And she, with almost both hands, kind of pushes gently the iced tea back up at oh, me no! and she looks at me and she says i didn't order this it's wasteful i don't want this and wow. said it in this very curt crabby unnecessarily crushing yeah it was sort of like <laughs> cool in all reality it was a little outsized of reaction for a fucking iced tea totally. but, so i deal with the iced tea i'm shaken and she's not my only table so then, whatever, I'm disheartened. I'm like, okay, I just need to make this end. And so fast forward, there's all this food left over. There's like a quarter of a pig and like fish, and there's just all this protein left on the table. The friend has gone, and they're like, yeah, we're done. So I said, okay, let me wrap all of this up for you. And they're like, no, no, that's okay. And my brain exploded because she was so rude and so angry that I wasted this iced tea. Yeah, you want to call out the hypocrisy here. And now here you are with probably six pounds of food, meat, animal, life that was sacrificed for your pleasure. And the iced tea was horrifically wasteful, but this is fine. You're a horrible person and I hate you. <laughs> strange. And so I threw out all the food. Yeah, strange to elevate tea leaves over animal lives. <laughs> it was so in my description of all these versions of what terrible looks like, there's the annoying guest, there's someone like this. Not only are you terrible, but you're also the hypocrisy of this and the inconsistency 
was also infuriating. <laughs> Everything about that was terrible, but I'm not going like, to throw her out. I'm just going to, for 15 years, tell the story about how terrible this, this celebrity <laughs> was. And then there's, like, violent or varying degrees of harassing, whether that's sexual or racial or people who get too drunk. And there definitely have been times where the police have been called you have to make a decision. And I worked for Danny Meyer, who, for those that don't know, is a renowned author, restaurateur. He wrote a book and really set the tone for what we understand as hospitality really in the last 15 years called Setting the Table. He's run a number of very famous restaurants here in New York, He's a speaker, whatever. So I was working for his company. And as an employee, there's a lot of culture that you're indoctrinated into and there is very much like a the guest is always right vibe they're not always right and we know that but we're going to do everything that we can to provide the experience that people need and so when when things escalated to a place where the guest was unreasonably hostile as a manager it's like i don't know what to do can I throw this person out? Is that even allowed? I don't know how to act here. And so there were definitely times where I, I wasn't exactly sure what to do. And I can think of th three particular cases. One, somebody got like really, really drunk and was arguing over the bill. And I don't remember the details of it, but we ended up calling the police. The restaurant was at the ground floor of a hotel and there was a relationship that our restaurant had to the hotel. So the hotel security was there. It was a whole to do. Wow. I'm pretty sure they ended up paying the check. We had cut him off because he was so drunk and he refused to pay the bill until we got him more alcohol. And we were like, <laughs> sir, you, first of all, you have to pay this bill. And also, no, you cannot have another drink as Evidenced by this conversation, we are not able to serve you. <laughs> but you can't reason with drunk people. I think most people know that. Yeah, sir, we there cannot was, we cannot go along with your vodka logic. Sorry. Yes, I'm I'm very sorry, but not. And then there was a time where there was this sort of gross display of misogyny and chauvinism. He he called his server, I think it was Toots or something like like what year is this what are you talking about yeah, it's and like 1950s like, mafioso or something it was yeah. very i don't remember if it exactly was toots but it was something along those let's lines. say it's toots that's brutal yeah and he spoke down to her and it was just really gross so we switched the server and i was manager at the time i ended up finishing out his service and we did ask him to leave I, I asked him to leave. In hindsight, I should have asked him to leave immediately, but I wasn't, I didn't know what I know now, and I wasn't trained to throw people out. I was trained to make it work. But eventually we gave him his check and said, sir, you need to take care of this bill, and thank you so much for coming in. Your night is over. Goodbye. How did he take it? I mean, not well. The emotional imprint and really the memory of that was I feel like I didn't step up to protect my server, who mm. was a friend. We were servers together and then I became a manager. 
So this is a friend of mine and I didn't step up fast enough to fix that. And I should have thrown them out earlier at the first instance of inappropriate behavior. But I've learned a lot since then. Anyway, and then there was a third that I remember where this gentleman was a local somebody. I don't want to disclose too much, but he was a local somebody and he caused a lot of problems and we actually banned him from the restaurant. But those times, I think you're trained to try to make it work. And I think this is a little bit easier to do today. And it's certainly something from like a philosophical or operational standpoint. I am much more of an advocate for employees and less tolerant of guest to be crass about it, bullshit and inappropriateness. I think that there's a shift happening, which is why it's interesting that you asked this question. As I said, there's a shift happening where the guest is not always right and we need to protect our employees, the integrity of our business, the integrity of our brand. And that comes first. Yeah. I think historically in the last, I'd say about 15 years, there's been a a little too much sacrifice of those principles for the sake of making some asshole happy. Yeah. That seems like a very important paradigm shift within capitalism, ousting the notion that customer is king also stops us from validating the idea that it's okay to be demeaning to someone when they provide service or not even demeaning, but it's okay to be inordinately demanding, which can be demeaning at times. It's not good for people. People shouldn't feel good about playing king, which implies that the person on the other side of the interaction is playing servant. That's especially bad in a country like America. I need not point out our our incredibly bleak and harsh history with master-servant dynamics. We should steer as clear from that as possible. So yeah, to the extent that that shift away from customers king could represent a more conscious or benevolent way of doing business. There's a there's a glimmer of hope for us in a time rife with pessimism and gloom. I have a tendency, as you can see now, an hour into this call, to avoid very concrete details, and I find that they can be very helpful for listeners. So walk us through some observations of what it's like to be in the various roles of a restaurant. You could say as much or as little as you want about each role, but for someone who's never been in the back of the house, someone who's never worked at a restaurant, what is it like? What is a shift like for a host, a server, a busser, a chef, a manager? I'm sure you could speak for hours about each one of them, but share a little about what the embodied experience is like for people who don't know about that or haven't really observed it much. Typically, there's an abstract divide between operational groups. There's the front of house, which are all of the people that you see when you walk into the business, when you walk into the restaurant, your host, busser, barback, bartender, server, barista, sommelier, managers, all of those folks that you see in the front. And then there's back of house, which are your porters and dishwashers and line cooks and sous chefs and prep cooks and the executive chef. And there is also a concept of whole house, 
there's an effort to try to break down these delineations because from a personality perspective, those that work in the front of house and those that work in the back of house typically are very different types of people. And they do these things for the various reasons that they do. So there's just so much diversity of businesses and when a person comes into the hospitality business, meaning like at what age or what stage. You could be a host for three years at a restaurant in a seaside or college town and then become a host in New York City. And it's almost like you've never hosted before in a lot of ways because the needs and the level of service are very different. How about the roles that you've had personally? You've been a manager, you've been a oh, server, I'm guessing yeah. you've done almost all of them. Take us through some salient thoughts from some of those roles. Okay. I, th- I think that there's a tendency to think of the hierarchy of a restaurant in terms of skills and value. And I think, for example, a bartender might see themselves as more valuable than a busser. It's a higher skilled position. You need tact with guests. You need to have a depth of memorization around the recipes. There's a a performative artistic element to what you do. But being a great busser is hard. And it depends on what restaurant you're in. So anyway, I just use that example to illustrate um, this general idea, this general notion that there's a ladder that one climbs up and you start as a busser or a barback or a host in these quote unskilled positions and then you eventually ascend to manager or whatever. When I do training, I I try to break that down, that idea. And I try to have people understand that there really isn't one position in a service period that is more important or more valuable than the other. It's an ecosystem. It's like saying that your heart is more important than your liver. And so none of the positions in a restaurant are more important than another. And there are, I think, differences in how that works. So for hosts, hosting and the door, as it's called, and running the reservation book, that's one of two major control points in terms of the flow of how service works and whether or not, again, sticking with this idea of a nice restaurant, right? There's a flow that has to happen. You have to get people at the tables. You have to make sure that once you open the door, there's a chain of events that unfolds. And the game that you play in operating a restaurant during a service is how can I create the most efficient flow of all of the events that are unfolding during this time? How do I get the most butts in seats? How do I get the most money out of these transactions? How do I bring the most joy to everybody that's here? How do I produce the best food in the shortest amount of time? So that's the game you're playing. So a host is really the first control point because if the seating doesn't go quite right, like dominoes, there's a chain reaction. So for example, If a server gets two tables at the same time, they're not able to greet and do all of the steps of service that have to happen to execute that meal. So they're saying hi to two tables at once, the two orders are going in at once, and there's just not a good flow. 
from a host perspective, they're kind of air traffic control in a lot of ways. They're inputting, they're saying what planes are going to take off, and then they're managing the various landings where the bussers and server assistants and food runners, they're the oil of the machine. So they're making sure that if I'm your server and you need a fork, I need to go to the service station and typically the busser's job or the server assistant's job is to make sure that there's a fork there. Because if there isn't a fork there, then I have to go wherever I have to go to find you a fork, which means I'm not doing the things that only I can do mm. as a server, which is provide this sort of performance experience. It's taking away from that. And so having that fork at that service station is actually incredibly important. And they, as this sort of oil of the machine, it's sort of paradoxical where they have the flexibility to kind of move around the dining room and share information with the host and share information with the manager and the server so that everybody is kind of on the same page about flow. This table's ready to be cleared or telling the host that they've reset a table and it's ready to be sat again. So they have a lot of flexibility. But what that also means is that unlike a server, unlike a host, or a bartender where this is where I am, and this is sort of the finite list of things that I need to do in this space, they can get pulled in a lot of different directions. So being a great busser is really about anticipation and time management, which I guess is true of all of these different roles. But yeah, so the hosts, I think of air traffic control, the, the support staff, I think of as the oil of the machine, the servers, their roles, creating this sort of emotional experience, but they do have a financial responsibility to themselves and the business. I always say you can't pay your rent in hugs. So as great as it is for me to create, you know, this emotional experience for <laughs> you, Pat, and your friends, I also need you to pay me for it. <laughs> and the restaurant needs you to buy things. So my job is not just about curating this show for you, but to be totally transparent about it. My job as a server or a bartender, anybody in a sales position in a restaurant is to extract the most money out of you as I possibly can and have you love giving me your money. You mm -hmm. should leave with as little money as possible and have <laughs> loved, loved emptying your wallet. That's my job. And that's really hard to balance all of those things, plus the time management and your project managing the service experience. I'm not making your drinks. I'm not making your food. Your table isn't the only table that's there. So I'm managing this flow of information from you, from the host, from my strategic mind, my sort of subconscious of, of how much money do I need to make tonight? And do I sell this item or that item? That's an interesting game to play. Bartenders are very similar. The difference is that bartenders have nowhere to go. So the experience of a bartender is I'm on stage and I am here this whole time. And as a server, you can disappear. If you're there for an hour and a half or two hours, how much of that time is really spent with your server? If you're at the bar having dinner or having drinks, your entire experience is centered around that bartender. Even when they're not paying attention to you, there's a show that they have to put on. And, and not everybody that works in those positions can do that emotionally. Yeah, that's, a, that's a significant distinction. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. So not everybody likes being behind the bar. But when you are behind the bar, you have much more control over your environment as opposed to a server where there's other servers sharing the service station and there's 
other tables and, you know, the bar, you have a lot more control over that space. As a manager, you have this infinite list of responsibilities. You're never done. There's no end to the to-do list. In my own career, I started as a busser. I eventually became a service director. Nine out of 10 restaurant managers started in line level positions, which means they don't necessarily have the skills in project management, time management, employee relations, accounting. And so by the nature of what they do, it's like your title is manager. And we have this concept of what a manager is, but a lot of times you're wholly unprepared for (laughs) all of what you need to do. And you're typically paid less and you work more. So for example, when I was last a server, I worked four days a week. I had health insurance and I made $60,000 a year. And that was like 2013. And I don't know who's listening to this and where you're listening, but keep in mind, I was living in New York City. So $60,000 in New York City is not the same $60,000 in different parts of the country. Yes, it's a good amount of money, but it's far below rich. It's far below the median rich. salary of New York City. Yeah. So, but the point is that I had three days off. I don't show up until four o'clock. I have a pretty sweet, quote, work life balance, right? I like what I do. I go to work. It's fun. It's not the entirety of my being, and I'm making good money. When I was offered a management position, they offered me, I think it was $45,000, and I had to work five days a week, obviously, and I kept my benefits. There were some increases there. But now I'm responsible for this huge team and I have administrative responsibilities. I have service responsibilities. And um, the point is that there's a lot of pressure to perform as managers. And I think that largely they are under-resourced. They're under-trained. They don't have enough time. There aren't enough of them. They don't have enough tools to do the things that they're supposed to do or want to do. I think that's changed a lot in the software era, which is why I started my business. What business did you start? What software are you referring to? Great question. A number of years ago, I was this under-resourced, frustrated manager. So I ended up taking the position that I referred to before. I did ask for more money than they were offering, not much more. I think my first management salary was like 48,000. Actually, let me back up a moment. So they offered me the management position. I declined. A friend of mine took the position and during the pre-shift meeting where it was like, yeah, like this is our new manager. Yay. I had this overwhelming sense that I had made a mistake. So long story short, the next time a management position came up, I took it because I realized that while I loved what I did and I was working four days a week and I could make money and there were restaurants where I could go that I could probably make even more money and lots of people make careers out of being a server. I realized that that wasn't the vision. I was in my late 20s. I didn't know what I wanted, but I knew what I didn't want. And I didn't want to be in my 50s, waiting tables, having knee pain and wearing orthotics and drinking a lot. Lots of people are happy with their lives and their choices doing exactly that. Bless them. That just wasn't what I envisioned. So the next time a management role came up, I took it for $48,000. And at the time, I'd been in the industry for about 10 years. I'd 
worked as a trainer or written training programs. And so naturally I took over the training program and to make a very long story short, I was frustrated that I couldn't communicate and hold my team accountable to all of the information that I wanted them to know. I sat in the office in the basement one day being frustrated that updating the menu description packet was just so hard to do, which like sounds ridiculous. Cause it's like, what do you mean it's hard to do? Like there's a menu and these are the ingredients and like do it. But it, it actually is a very complex process mm-hmm. to make sure that your team has, what is the information? How do I organize it? How do I manage information over time as it evolves? So it's not as straightforward as it might sound to someone who doesn't work in the industry. Anyway, I was sitting there and I'm like, this is ridiculous. I can't be the only manager that's like trying to do this better than I'm doing it with Word documents and whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, And there has to be a software solution. At that time, the iPhone was a thing. And I looked for a software solution and there wasn't one. And that is what would eventually evolve to the next chapter of my life, which is what I do now as the founder of a software called Misebox, M-I-S-E-B-O-X. It's a play on this concept of mise en place, which comes from kitchens to explain this to people who don't work in restaurants when you go to chipotle or one of those buildable type places they're not first cooking the chicken and cutting the chicken and cleaning the vegetables right so in nice restaurants (laughs) i love this term in nice (laughs) restaurants the whole kitchen is organized that way they're not first making sauces when you order your pasta they're not first chopping garlic etc so all of that is called mise en place which is basically your setup. It means everything in its place. And in the front of house, it's having the fork at the service station. It's making sure that when the guests sit down, that they have the utensils that they're going to need, that the wine glasses are brought to the table when a bottle of wine is ordered, um, that the correct silverware is ready for the next course, et cetera. So that all of that is mise en place. So mise box is this idea that everything in one place, all of your setup in one place, So Miesbox is a software solution that gives restaurants and restaurant groups the tools, time, and experience they need to thrive. The platform serves as a single source of information for teams and managers, and it allows for more efficiency in daily operations and happy employees. Both of those things are needed to improve profitability. So that's what I do today. I now run a software company, which when I went to college and I said I didn't want to sit behind a desk, (laughs) I now sit often behind a desk. But it's not what I meant when I said that. (laughs) I love what I do and I love working with the restaurant businesses. And now I'm building all of what I've learned over these 20 years into a platform to allow for that under-resourced manager to thrive in their role and the domino effect that that has on the workforce that keeps restaurants alive. I love it. Very cool. I know an earlier iteration of your business was called Restaurant Reason. What constituted the name change? Restaurant Reason didn't really communicate what we wanted to do. And I hate that I'm about to say what I'm going to say, but in recent news, it's very similar to what Facebook did, where Mm. 
the company and the products were out of alignment and we wanted something with fewer syllables, a little bit closer to what it is that we actually were doing. So we underwent a complete rebrand and actually Restaurant Reason is the parent company that owns the company that produces Miesbox. Mm. So Miesbox is the software, Restaurant Reason is the company. Mm, got it. Well, I have two more small, very easy questions for you. One is about the future of food. <laughs> okay. Someone who has two decades plus of restaurant experience, food experience. How are you thinking about lab produced food? I live in northeastern Pennsylvania in a small town. When I was a kid, if I were in the grocery store with my mom 25 years ago, I wouldn't have seen crumble is one non-meat meat replicating product. Seitan, am I pronouncing it right? That definitely wasn't in grocery stores. That's a soy-based product that could be used um, in dishes where meat would traditionally be used. It could be cooked with pasta, with vegetables, whatever. So I, I think that there is a rise in, uh, I hope, sensitivity toward animal suffering. And then, of course, the other front is methane produced by cows and the effects on climate change. There are really good reasons for us to to get away in America and, and around the world from our very heavily meat-centric diets. And I'll, I'll immediately cop to the fact that I've always been an avid carnivore and I struggle with this. I think we often are very binary in our thinking where it's like, if I'm not a vegan, I'm a terrible sinner and I'm going to hell. I find that to be demotivating. So I've tried to incorporate meatless Mondays as a start to, to kind of get moving in the, in the right direction towards a little bit less meat. What are your thoughts here on less meat, on more sustainability, where we're at on these questions, relationship of restaurants to climate change? Really simple, small questions. Pick one. Tell us your thoughts. Well, let's start with the meatless vegan food engineering I hope the brands don't get upset with me, but when I think of these like engineered meat products, the Impossible Burger or the Beyond Burger and all the variants that are coming out of different versions of plant-based meat replicants, mm -hmm. I think of the Matrix. I think it's the first scene that Neo is eating and they're basically eating this engineered oatmeal goop. And I think... That's not exactly what is happening, but I, I just imagine us kind of going down this, like Soylent. I think there's a dark road of engineered nutrition that really isn't food. So I'll say that. I don't think that the Impossible Burger and all of these, the Beyond Burger, Impossible Burger, all of these derivations that, that come out of that, I don't think that that's so terrible, but it's... Everything, there's marketing, and then there's the story, and then there's the context in which that story is being told. So you've asked a very complex question about the food system. I'll answer it in, I guess, two ways, and let's just call that my preamble. <laughs> in the 90s and early 2000s, when you went to a vegetarian restaurant, Dirt Candy by Amanda Cohen here in New York is like a great example of doing vegetarian that's not what I'm about to talk about. 
they're not creating vegetable versions of meat things. Like I saw on Instagram, somebody was like, a beet wrapped in pastry dough is not a vegetarian beef Wellington. <laughs> There's a restaurant, I think it was called Red Bamboo. I don't even know if it's still there in the West Village here in New York. But you could order chicken parm, but it was not chicken. Or you could order meat less balls or whatever. And there was this need to convert meat eaters to vegetarian. You had to give them meat-like food to make that happen, which mm. I think birthed eventually the Beyond Burger. What's cool about the Beyond Burger that a lot of people probably don't think about that I do as someone who comes from a lineage of Jews and my sister uh, keeps kosher the Beyond Burger is kosher, which means that you can have a cheeseburger experience, which in kashrut law, you can't eat cheeseburgers. You can have a cheeseburger-like experience with a Beyond Burger. Mm. So there's a lot of cool things. I guess the distillation here is I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with it. There's a lot of engineering and manufacturing that goes into this stuff. I don't know enough about what those carbon footprints look like. Yeah. Um, but... We have a consumption problem in general. And when I say that, I don't mean consumption in the way that you would think of it at face value. But as I mentioned earlier, I spent some time consulting with restaurants because I saw how much food waste was going into the waste system. And the more I dug into it, and I was, as I said, involved in, in environmental advocacy and in that echo chamber, I've been hearing these climate threats personally at this volume for 20 years, at least. So I noticed how much food was going into the landfills, and I learned very early on that rotting food creates methane, and that methane is exponentially more efficient at trapping heat than carbon. Mm. So in terms of a sense of urgency, we actually would get the most bang for our buck in terms of climate change, tackling the methane problem because carbon persists in the atmosphere exponentially longer than methane, while methane is more potent it persists for less time in the atmosphere. So if we can solve this methane problem, we can really create a pretty quick change to the trajectory of the climate crisis. So the waste in restaurants is exceptional. And I think there's an intersection there. So tying all of this to your question, we definitely need to cut down on mass agriculture and the way that we manage livestock is disgusting. It's disgusting on a climate level. It's disgusting on an emotional level, mm -hmm. on a spiritual level. Like it's pretty gross. And I don't know that the Impossible Burger and its friends are going to do that necessarily. But at the same time, we have this consumption problem, which is actually a waste problem. It's that we're consuming from a transactional level, like we're buying all of this food and we're, quote, consuming all of this food, but we're not actually. The first time that I implemented a composting of food waste recycling strategy was at Roy's restaurant in Baltimore, where I was working. It was the first one of its kind in Baltimore. 
we had like five gallon pickle buckets, like a paint bucket, like a white, yeah, little white mm-hmm. bucket. You can imagine one. Yeah. that was the size of our trash can. Once we started recycling our glass, plastic, metal and food, that's what was left. Those are the things that didn't go into one of those other categories. Now, recycling has its problems, but food waste recycling, it was insane how much food we would throw out. And I think if we're really interested in solving that, all of these problems, I think that food waste is a great place to start. So I don't know if that answered the question. I mean, it was a huge question. I could talk about any of these things for... Uh, I think that it was an effective preamble. And preamble is about as good as we could get in the in the context of, of this little show. Thanks for sharing that. Well, I, I have to ask you about tipping. We're talking about restaurants, wood servers, and, and we'll stay with nice restaurants. Would servers in nice restaurants be better off, in your opinion, if tipping were abolished and wages were increased, or if, say, a 20% tip were automatically worked into the bill and customers didn't have to do any math? What are your thoughts on the issue of tipping, good or bad? (laughs) What do we do with it? Ooh, I'm glad you asked this. I'm going to answer this question in a slightly roundabout way, but the restaurant industry is in a transition. And I won't go through the whole history, but the Food Network, the TV channel, Mm -hmm. changed American society's relationship with food and food service as a profession. So we're a long way from running an inn in the Game of Thrones (laughs) to where we are now, right? Like it's not, it's a very different thing. And there's a professionalism that has arisen in the industry and you can have a career in the restaurant business. You can be a career server. That is a possibility, but the industry at large has not adapted its operating model to match the need of what what is really happening. And so I think that restaurants should be operating more like, I hate to use this word because it's such a trigger word for restaurant people, but more like a corporate business than a restaurant in the sense of a person should be able to be hired at a restaurant and understand what they're going to learn, how they can grow, what kind of skills they can develop, where that's going to lead them, either in that restaurant, in the restaurant group, right? Maybe there's a career path that if they wanna learn more about beverage, this is where they can go with that. If they wanna learn more about service and hospitality, if they wanna learn more about marketing, whatever. In the industry today, we don't cultivate our employees the way that employees would get cultivated in a corporate business. It's just not the way that our business model works because we evolved from inns at the side of the road to what we have today. And I think that there's a reckoning that's happening because food service workers are quitting. We've heard of the great resignation. I think I read this morning of the 6.6% of 
quitting that happened of the workforce, 2.9% of that was food service or something like crazy. Those numbers maybe are a little bit backwards, but the point is that it illustrates that food service workers don't want to work in this industry. Why? Because of inequity, inequity in pay, inequity in treatment, lack of opportunities, and restaurants really haven't been curating the experience of their employees. They don't have an employer brand. It's very transactional. And so I think there's a sort of shift that's going to need to happen. If you, Pat, as a guest of a restaurant, want to keep going to nice restaurants, restaurants are going to have to adapt to this model that I'm sort of alluding to. On the other side of it, there's this part of this conversation within the industry or within the sort of socialist activist space is lots of guests are like, you should treat your workers fairly and you should pay them a fair wage. And tipping is based on racism, which is true. And I'm going to unpack that in a second, but restaurants should be better. And then restaurants are like, okay, so we're going to increase the price of our menu. And then that same person who's like, yeah, progress. They go into the restaurant and they're like, why is this $30? (laughs) And it's like, bruh, because that's what it costs. We have not been paying for what it actually takes to run restaurants the way that they, quote, should be run. When you take all of the stakeholders into account, we are underpaying for what restaurants are, which means there's going to be a necessary attrition of nice restaurants In my opinion, there are too many and there were too many. That's why so many closed in the pandemic. Like how many Italian restaurants do we really need in New York City? (laughs) Now, that's an unanswerable question. And I think there's probably 15 that I could name that are all very different from one another and very excellent. But do we need 500? Do we need three in the same neighborhood? Like, I don't think that there's an objective measure to that, but it's more the rhetorical question of, do do we need all of these restaurants? Does the industry need all of these restaurants? Do guests really need all of these restaurants? And I think this dovetails into the rise of sort of fast casual chipotles of the world, where our relationship with food and dining has changed because our relationship with work has changed. But I digress. So to answer your question, tipping has a long, well-documented history of being a racist, sexist, ageist practice. And there is no question that tipping comes from the practice of slavery and has evolved into this insane relationship where the way that people wield tipping as power is crazy. Aligning these two things, tipping as a practice is inequity. The act of tipping is the act of inequity. And restaurants would be better, and I mean this economically, if they treat their business like a business and not like a restaurant. And I hope that that makes some sense in context of what I've said. But to make all of this happen, there's a reconciliation that needs to happen societally, where there will be fewer restaurants, and restaurants will be more expensive. You'll get a better experience. I think everybody would win. 
in the long run, but it will mean that some people can't go to nice restaurants as often as they used to. Mm. The tangential thought here is that the pandemic did something really interesting, which if I can pat myself on the back, I called at the beginning of the pandemic, but there was saturation of restaurants in urban centers like New York. This labor crisis has been brewing for years, well before the pandemic, where people who work in restaurants in New York City can't actually live near where they work. Lots of cooks lived 45 minutes, an hour and a half away from the places that they cooked because to get the hours that they needed and the wages that they needed, they had to work in these city centers, but it still wasn't enough to live close to work. Mm. So if you're done with your service at two o'clock in the morning, that means that you're taking a subway for an hour and a half. Like you're not getting home till 3.30 in the morning. Who wants to do that? So when the pandemic hit, Lots of people who realized they're never going to open a restaurant in New York, they're never going to open a restaurant in Miami, they're never going to open a restaurant in wherever it is that's super expensive to open restaurants because it was too expensive, the talent wasn't there, whatever, they left because they had to. Why am I staying in New York City? You're one of these folks that moved from a city to home. And essentially where I'm going with this distillation here is there's a redistribution of talent. And I think that we're actually going to see really amazing restaurants and really amazing restaurant talent in secondary and tertiary markets. And that because of what the internet is now and the access that people have and couching the supply chain crisis for a second, the availability of products that you were talking about before in places that you wouldn't have thought you could get those products, you can do incredible cuisine and incredible service in places that you could never do that before because the talent and the product is available. That's my sort of assessment of like what's happening in the industry and and on tipping. It's not just about the tipping, it's about how are restaurants structured as businesses and what is it that we're actually trying to do here. And I think the nice restaurants that are going to survive are going to be incredible experiences. That's fascinating. We shall see. We have Dana Cotine's predictions here (laughs) recorded for reference. We could go back and and see how it all shakes out. Dana, this has been a delight. It's been a veritable buffet of food for thought for listeners. (laughs) Our listener base is global. I I recently learned that a lot of people from South Korea are tuning in. I've worked with many people from South Korea. So thank you to all my South Korean friends, colleagues, students (laughs) who have tuned in. But I think within the U.S., we do have a listener base on the East Coast. So New York City is accessible and people are going to restaurants. Would you share a few New York City restaurant recommendations? Wow. Yeah, totally. Well, my friends downtown in the financial district have a trio of experiences that I'd recommend. It's called Crown Shy, and it's absolutely phenomenal. It's at 70 Pine in the financial district. And in the same building upstairs, this is like nice plus. So Mm -hmm. Crown Shy is nice. Saga is a new restaurant. It's a tasting menu. You will spend there. So this isn't just like you show up and have a casual meal. This is an event. Either you have so much money, you're quite wealthy, and you can just go there casually, or this is like a special occasion restaurant. And then 
there's a bar up a couple floors called Overstory. It's not the only, it's certainly one of the very few 360 degree balconies. So you can see New Jersey, Staten Island, Brooklyn, all of upper Manhattan, Queens, the views of from Overstory are absolutely incredible. So any of those three, I think are really brilliant. If you'd like kind of old school New York and old school Italian, family friends of mine own a restaurant on 46th Street between 8th and 9th Avenue called La Tanzi. I am biased. I've been eating there for 30 years, (laughs) (laughs) but it's incredible. And after eight o'clock, they offer a special menu that highlights the food of the Jews of Rome. I'll leave it at that. You can go to their website Mm. and take a look at the menu or reach out to me if you have other questions there. And then if you want something like a little bit more kind of cool, casual, Huertas, H-U-E-R-T-A-S on the Lower East Side. Chef Jonah Miller and I worked together a decade ago and he went on to uh, create this amazing restaurant that highlights the cuisine of the Basque Country in Spain. Mm -hmm. Really, really innovative, very delicious, very cool. They make their own vermouth. Like, it's a very cool spot. And then I think Kindred and Ruffian, who are owned by the, the same folks. Ruffian's a wine bar. Kindred is Italian-anchored with a really cool wine list. Mm-hmm. And it's super cash. It's fun, cool. You're going to get great servers who are knowledgeable and passionate about what they do. Those are a few great come to new york i love pat when i'm in your neighborhood and people with this face they're like how's new york and like (laughs) girl it's fine it's so chill i mean it's not as crazy busy as it was maybe pre-pandemic there are lots of people around and the mask situation is unlocked we're good come to new york it's it's great here I can report as an outsider too, spending time a couple of weekends ago in the East Village and Williamsburg. Everywhere I went was crowded and had that electric energy that we all know and love in New York. So yeah, even as someone who visits and has the reference point of my sleepy town, that was the case for me as well. If anybody's interested in recommendations, they can feel free to reach out. If you're coming to New York, I'm happy to throw stuff together. It it, it can be a hard question because there's so many different kinds of cuisine and price point and where are you staying and how long are you here? I guess that's what makes me a hospitalitarian. It's the details. It's curating the details that that makes it so special for people. Should I point people toward either a social presence of Dana Coteen or Miesbox? Sure. My social handle is pretty straightforward. On Instagram or Twitter, I'm Mr. Dana K, M-R-D-A-N-A-K. And Miesbox is on Instagram at Miesbox, M-I-S-E-B-O-X. Any of those channels would be just fine. Restaurant people, <laughs> if if you're listening, I hope I'd be happy to have a conversation, but I hope that you start to think about what I'm saying and and internalize it because I think we have a real opportunity. It's no secret to those of us in the industry that things have been broken for a really long time. There's been amazing things, and I've personally built a career out of working in hospitality, but there's a lot of things that 
I'm a white man. And so the, the privilege is not lost on me. There are a lot of people who are not white men that did not have the same kind of success and experiences that I had. And we need to fix that. And I hope that you're open to that idea and that conversation. And for those of you that don't work in the restaurant industry, please don't walk into a restaurant and say, I could make this at home for $6 because you can't, you can't do that. I'm sure you can make a mean spaghetti and a a hamburger or whatever, but what goes into making that hamburger is way beyond what I think generally people think about. It's not just about the food costs. There's so much more and the value of going to the restaurant so that you don't have to make that hamburger is what you're paying for. It's not just the food. So if we can figure out as a society, how much is a restaurant really worth? I think this industry is going to make it. That's a wonderful and important question to leave lingering in in the minds of listeners. Dana, thanks so much for what you do. Thanks for sharing your expertise and knowledge. This was both fun and educational. And when I think about my education, it was often mutually exclusive with fun. So I'm glad to be an adult getting (laughs) educated and having fun now. So thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you.